Hi, Christy from the Rub the Wrong Way podcast here. I just wanted to let you guys know that on the 7th and 8th of October this year, 2016, I will be speaking at We Are Podcast. This is Australia's premier podcasting conference. Um, And I get to speak at it. Ha! It's so amazing. Um, So I'm really pumped and I would really love to see anyone out there who is super keen on starting their own show or meeting a bunch of influencers who have their own podcasts, learning more about this kind of fun, exciting medium um, and where it's going and how you can leverage it to increase your business and just be more awesome at life generally. So if you are keen to get a ticket and you would love and you really want to come, I would love to see you there. All you need to do is visit the website, which is wearepodcast.com slash 2016. When you purchase your ticket, put in this unique code, which is Christy, spelled K-R-I-S-T-I-E-M, M for Melling. Put in that code and you will receive 25% off your ticket. That's an amazing discount and I would seriously love to see anyone from my show there. That would be so cool. Please come up to the Gold Coast, um, come and meet a whole bunch of really cool podcasters and come and hang out with me. That would be great. Awesome. And now on to the show. Welcome to Rub the Wrong Way, a podcast for massage professionals. Each week, we undrape the taboo topics of massage therapy life, go deep on industry issues, and help you discover practice-building tips and tricks from industry experts. Grab your laundry basket and join your host, Christy Melling, as we strip down, bear all, and help you get rubbed the right way. All right, Stephen Goldstein, welcome to the Rub the Wrong Way podcast. How are you today? Oh, I am amazing, Christy, and so excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Um, I have actually been wanting to have you on the show for for a long time, and you have actually been a requested therapist. So there have been people out there who have been asking for you to come on the show. So welcome. Now, Stephen, I... Have I have known you for a, a little while now. We've we've been friends for a little while, which is really cool. But tell me a little bit about you. Let's let's go. We were talking earlier before we hit record about let's talk about your origin story. So how Stephen Goldstein became Stephen Goldstein. Where did that start? Wow. Um, <laughs> go I back to I the beginning. <laughs> yeah, I haven't been asked that for a long time. I call it uh, my creation myth. Um, look at. I came up in a different generation at a different time when uh, the boundaries of massage were blurred. And during that blurry period uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, I started to um, investigate uh, touch a bit more as a profession, not just an avocation. And so I took one of the first massage classes, uh, which I didn't complete in 1981. And one of my um, fellow uh, students in the class was a, a chap named Brian Utting. Well, Brian very shortly opened his own school in Seattle. And at that time, I was working at what was called PCC. I was in uh, uh, natural foods. But I was just schlepping groceries. I was in my early 30s. And I was uh, hurting my back pretty bad. 
and I was looking for a career change. And one day, Brian came in and shopped, and he said, Stephen, let me make you a deal you can't refuse. I'll, you take the course for half price, and uh, you'll get another profession. And I went, yeah, that sounds really good, because I already was doing massage in some form and always interested in touch as a medium. So uh, in 1985, I took his six-month, 120-hour course, <laughs> when you think about it now. <laughs> and upon completion of the course, I had to then sit, and, in an, and I was in Washington State, which was one of the more progressive uh, massage education programs at the time. Um, I sat, we had to go, you had to go what was called the state boards. You had to sit for both a written examination and a practical examination. So the written, I did very well, 96%, and, you know, uh, no problems. But when it came to the practical, I was very nervous. And so we all had to go down to Olympia. Old and sweaty palms. Old sweaty palms. I was under the pump in a prac. And I got in there and uh, with my model and... I was asked a series, a series of questions that are a blur now, but I remembered I could not identify where the kidneys were. I was like, kidneys? Where the heck are the kidneys? Well, anyways, I managed, and so you get docked some very, you know, points, and then I, I think I did something that was endangering the client in some form, some hacking technique, again, around the kidneys, because I couldn't identify them, uh, even though he wasn't going to be hurt at all, of course. So I went down and I just barely passed the exam. I got a 71 and 70 was passing. And of course, your ego takes a real hit. You know, you're like, uh-oh. And then later you go, well, who's going to know your score? You know, at the end of the day, I still got the credential. Well, so everybody year... is going to know your score now because you've just... Yeah. I'm a failure. Oh, no. So I was in Seattle and... Um, I, I did a series of sort of what everyone does when they're sort of just in school or out of school, you know, spas and stuff. And I was always wanting to do much more problem solving clinical stuff. So long story short, uh, a year out of school, um, Diana Thompson had a injury clinic over a chiropractic at a beautiful location in Green Lake in Seattle. And Diana has gone on to write uh, several books, one in particular called Hands Heal, She's sat on the American Massage Therapy Association National Board. She's on the Massage Foundation. She was been, as you remember, one of uh, one of the guest uh, presenters for at the time AAMT. Anyways, she hired me. I was her second hire. Uh, she saw something in me at the time I didn't see. And interestingly enough, as a mentor, she was ten years my junior. Or yes, yeah, she was ten years younger. And it was also the first gay massage clinic in Seattle. So I was working for a couple of lesbians, really. And, and then she hired a lot more lesbians. And then I had to deal with all those issues, which is being the token hetero man on a, a lesbian staff. And man, I had some, we had some cat fights and barn fights and dog fights. But it was always, you know, with love. And, um, and, and so she went on to teach uh, at a school right around the corner. Now, in that time, the, the two prestigious schools were the one I graduated from, Brian Utting, and the one that um, Diana was teaching at, Seattle Massage School. Uh, Brian wasn't going to pay you virtually anything. You would have to uh, uh, go through a year 
of uh, assisting before they would even consider putting you on. Whereas Seattle Massage School just said, yeah, we'll hire you. So uh, in my year six of practice, Diana encouraged me to become an instructor. And I was just hitting, I was in my late 30s and I was just going to be about 40 years old. So I had the maturity and I was scared shitless. I thought, oh, this is exactly, then I better go do this because it frightened the hell out of me. Now, you know, and of course, the old adage is, if you can't do, you teach. Uh, but in this adage, it was you know, really to learn, you teach. So I assisted in 1992 at Seattle Massage School, which ended up having a, a massage faculty of about 60 instructors, of which Diana Thompson, Andrew Beal, who wrote Trail Guide to the Body, um, Marty Ryan and I were mates who taught together and went on to do Love Your Guts, and he's, you know, it was loaded with potential, and we would have massage nerd discussions that got volatile, you know, like people believed their own model more than anything else, and, and I was cottoning on the fascia, so at that time, I was picking up, see, Drew was the kinesiologist, and I don't mean applied kinesiologist. In America, kinesiology meant that you understood uh, anatomy and structure. So he was the first one ever to bungee cord a skeleton at the school. And that was the proponent of him writing Trail Guide to the Body. I watched that book unfold uh, before my eyes with Drew. And I, for some reason, because I wasn't getting the kind of results clinically, so... Let me step back to clinic for a second. I was thrown to the wolves. I had 120 hours of education, about less than a year in a spa, and I'm working whiplashes, I'm working trauma cases, and so I didn't know what I was doing, you know. And to Diana's, uh, you know, to her ability, she would once a month bring in a, a clinical psychologist to work with the staff so that we would be able to work through not only uh, issues in terms of with client uh, issues, um, but also problem-solve cases. So um, I was thrown to the wolves. Now, what that did to me was a sink or swim sort of situation. And I, um, I mean, I was in the U.S. Navy in 1971, and I remember I couldn't swim a lick. And, I, I, and so in order to pass, you had to sink or swim. So I got used to that. In fact, I had to be, I jumped in the water twice, couldn't swim, came up to the surface, they surface, they stuck the pole in, pulled me out. And the third time I jumped in, I heard the, uh, the drill instructor go, hey, you son of a bitch, we're not going to save you this time. So I figured out how to swim. So that actually allowed me to think, I actually, that image allowed me like, all right, I got to figure this out. And I made mistakes. But one of the things I figured out was that working muscles alone didn't cut it. And I glimpsed fascia and I changed my variables on touch. And next thing I know, I started getting responses. And then later, people had taken John Barnes' workshop. So I got a pirated copy of a John Barnes workshop. And I realized that I was doing what John Barnes was teaching. And so then they gave me a name. And the name was Mr. Mile Fascia at the school. So I figured, well, shit, you know, I better live up to that <laughs> moniker. Exactly. So, and so, and it, you have to understand that we live in a different information age than in the late 80s and the 90s. 
the osteopathy was a closed shop to massage therapists. Structural integration was a closed shop. It was hard to get information. But because of the sink and swim, and I had to always had a curious mind, no one told me I, w- I couldn't do something. And the other thing was they, you know, the ad- you had to do do no harm. And so the do no harm was as long as you didn't kill your client on the table, you know, you could pretty much try things out. And I, I've always had the adage of it's called a practice. And a practice means you can practice. But not only you can practice, you don't have to tell your client, you don't know what the fuck you're doing. And that's how it felt half the time in those early years. Honestly, I didn't know what I was doing. I was trying things out. And I started to stumble my way into how I understood what was going on with myofascia. So then I'd watch the students be struggling, working a muscle or an IT band. I go, no, you push gently this direction. And all of a sudden the ITB lets go and everybody goes, wow. And so that started that. And then about 1995, I've been teaching about three or four or five years in Seattle. Uh, Students started asking me to teach a workshop for them. But at that time, it was all about who you trained with. So no one would give anybody any credibility if I said to them, well, I made all this up. But the truth is, I made all of it up. No one really taught me it. So um, I'm one of those odd individuals out there who still didn't train with a lot of people. I've trained with some, but I figured it out on my own. And so the workshops were the same. And when I first wrote it, it was sort of everybody else's material. And then before long, I started to do ownership. And as that material evolved in the mid to late 90s, one of the things I did every session was I was, I was enamored with joints. I figured out that joints were important to muscles and myofascia. So I crowded every joint in the body over a year and a half period that I could figure out and figured out release points. And then, of course, as Ronnie Alexander said to me recently, he said, is your love affair with joint compression finally over? <laughs> or are you a one-trick pony? And I go, you're right. No, there, there's more than joint compression. Um, and there was lots of holes in my education. And slowly through teaching, uh, those holes have become filled. I've always been curious. I've always been reading. I never stop. I'm voracious. Uh, you know me. I'm always writing a new workshop. I'm always doing that kind of information. So um, that was just a natural extension of sort of my curious mind. And that's part of the creation myth. Wow. I mean, seriously, like I have a page full of notes here because I'm that kind of person. Um you have worked with some really, really big names, like Trail Guide to the Body. Like that's the that's one of the Bibles. Like that's one of the like founding Bibles. Yeah, it's true. And and I think it's I think it's a really amazing. Um, oh, oh, I can't think of the right word. It's an amazing thing for you to come out and say, mm, I kind of just made it up. <laughs> like oh, I just did what worked. I, yes. I really feel like there's a lot of um, a lot of therapists, new therapists out there, who are looking for a guru or looking for the the magic, you know, the magic yeah. person yeah. to give them the way that it will all fall into place and come together. When what, like you said, what they need to do is practice. 
That's right. I mean, guidance without a doubt. Um, mm. And mentoring uh, and, 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 and all mentoring. these things. Yes. They're really, really important. But at some, at some stage, you have to realize that it's just a massage. You aren't going to kill. You know, I mean, the chances you're going to kill someone on the table is really slim. It is remote, provided you're, you obey some of the uh, caveats that you were taught, which is to always work within the scope, mm. to, to understand what you're touching and how deep and how fast, uh, have respect for the consciousness of the body. That's when p- people get into trouble and they overtreat. And you know, I mean, I guess maybe I was lucky, you know, because I, I tried a lot of a lot of things out that probably now I'm thinking back. I mean, I devised one time as I was working through the workshops. Uh, see, I roll people on the table. OK, so what does that mean? What does that well, mean? Yeah. <laughs> what does okay, that so mean? I know it's, it's like, what are you talking about now? All right. So in 1995 or six, I decided that I didn't want to do Watsu, which was shiatsu in water, but I wanted to create a mechanism to work more three-dimensionally so that I would float a body. And so the cranial sacral therapists were using air beds. So this is Stephen's trademark. You always see a workshop, Stephen has an air bed. Well, I've been working with an air bed since 1995, and what it allows me to do is to use the bottom hand more effectively than I would without an air bed so that I can put top and bottom hands together and do vectors and shears and two-point relationships for tension and assessment, palpatory assessment. So that was one of the things that um, I utilized in my practice early on that was that's very different. I kind of lost my train of thought there. What was the other question? <laughs> I think we were just talking about mentoring and how and how right. it's important to to try things out and kind of yes. be okay with being a bit yes. like and be okay with not getting it right. I think in that, fact that's more important than getting it right. Yeah, you you've nailed it. And one of the things I write about in in my upcoming book uh, that's seems to be being written for the last ten years, but hopefully it will come out at the end of next year, is um, you know you've got to. You don't have to get it perfect. The nervous system doesn't need perfection. It needs communication through touch. And that's sort of the, one of the things that you, you, know, you want to work with. So let's, let's talk about um, your recent stuff, like so the recent work you've been doing. Let's go to some of the, the stuff you've been doing overseas because I know you've been working in places like South Africa. You've been working, yes. um, I think you said Poland or is that something? 2011? Yeah. No, 2011 I was uh, – look, at, I got my first uh, – uh, so the genesis is I was going back over archived websites of the workshops I taught in the early years – and then I started, uh, I got, in the mid, mid-last mid decade, I got to go to Hawaii for, it usually ends about two or three years. I did a little stint of teaching in Hawaii. That's and then nice, be- really, isn't it? Oh, I want to go back, let me tell you. We had some good trips after teaching the workshop. And I had a chance, actually, in Hawaii to meet the late Robert Noah Calvert, who wrote um, a history of massage. And he was the founder of Massage Magazine. I just met him, and then the bloke dies three months later. You know, I felt really cheated. Isn't that a terrible thing to say? But out of that, he was a participant in my workshops as a model. And then he, inv- he and Judy, his wife, invited us over 
for dinner, my wife Robin and I, and I was thrilled. So we had this dinner with Robert, and he said, you know, I'm paying attention to you. I go, are you? He says, yeah, you're, you're doing some really interesting things out there. I said, well, and that was to me was like the first person that I really respected that went, wow, you know, you're, you're onto something. And then he did a show, show and tell because he had the largest history of massage collection of implements through time anybody ever had. I have no idea what happened to that collection after he died, if Judy kept it or sold it off or whatever. But he had traveled the world collecting massage implements. So he pulled out a 3,000-year-old jade, hand-jade massager, like a little sculpted out of jade, 3,000 years old. And then he came out in this, what was fairly, looked like a, a very pristine box, but it was very aged and dated. Like, in other words, it was like getting, it gone through a time capsule from 1860, and you could see what it would look like new in 1860. And he opened it up, and he pulled out something that looked like a, an egg beater that you spin. And it was a massage spinning tool that they used on the backs and the legs. It was just crazy. It was that crazy. horrible. Oh, it was crazy stuff. Uh, but Hawaii was really just wonderful, and, and he was a highlight out of those two years. Then, due to um, contacts between the reciprocal associations of AAMT and NHP Canada, I got a little bit of, of a couple years of going over to Canada. And that helped create some of the first uh, DVDs, or second set of DVDs I was able to produce. And then Marty Ryan, actually it was Marty. Marty was teaching in the U.K., and at that time, the organizer for the UK was running um, a series of workshops. And I said, damn, I want to go to the UK. So, um, and I was, I want a trip to England. I want a trip. I want a trip to England. And not only a trip to England, I was, you know, I'm, I'm a very osteopathic in my orientation, self-taught. And they were hosting the workshops at the British School of Osteopathy. Now, to me, that was like, oh, my God, that's the hallowed hall. You know, this is where all the luminaries in osteopathy and I'm a student of history, and I respect my elders, so um, I always pay sort of homage and reverence to the, those that have gone before and, you know, the building blocks upon our knowledge. So I was pretty rapt if I could go teach there. And sure enough, in 2010, we got a workshop up. And so for the first time, I got out of the USA and Australia, and I got to the UK and got to show what I was doing, and we had a full house and out of that came a subsequent classes. And at the same time with that one, I got a cold call email from Poland. So I taught, first time my work was being translated, uh, I taught a three-day course in Poznan, which is directly east of Berlin over the border. And Poland is a very interesting and uh, yeah, they're very, they're, they're ripe for Western influence. Uh, it's a very mixed sort of bag. It's like, you know, very impoverished looking on some levels. And yet the women walk around in Paris fashions, you know, so you get this really interesting Soviet era poverty mentality in, in, in the infrastructure. And then you have, you know, just women dressing like, you know, they're on, on a, on a rue, a rue, uh, de boulevard in Paris or something. So it's, it was just really interesting. And, of course, um, they don't question you. So the students sat there like lemmings in the seats, you know. And so 
I had to figure out lambs I to thought, the slaughter. Yeah, it's like, well, okay, authority. Like you know, they don't, they're not allowed to question or get shot. <laughs> so you had cultural differences, including translatory differences. So that led to a guy who was following me on uh, the UK site from South Africa. South Africa to go, uh, Andrew Seymour, wonderful, become a nice, a really good friend of mine, uh, said, hey, we'd like to see you down here. I said, well, there's no way I can go down there without an organizer. So he put me on to uh, Craig Smith at Club Physio, and I ran my first course in Cape Town and Joburg. And Joburg, you couldn't walk around, you know, you had to be traveled in your gated communities. So it was like a real, another cultural moment yeah. of going, wow, the stories are sort of true. No white boy on the street, you know? Um, but, and I had mixed reviews. I had people that absolutely loved my work, and for the first time, I had people who called me a wanker and who thought I was just disposing pseudoscience bullshit. So it, and it, the crowd was physiotherapists, and that was my first real understanding that I need to tailor my work and to the audience, that I really have to reference really well, and that I keep my personal biases and beliefs to myself in teaching, and that I walk a middle road of telling the truth when I don't know something. Of course, I always did that, but um, you know that still had to be more adhered to. And I, I found that uh, it made me a better instructor. It was uh, growing pains, and let me tell you, they're pains when people don't like what you're doing and they challenge you. And along as, as I always tell my students, if you're respectful in the challenge, and this is what we're noticing on all the blog sites, you know, uh, how not to take things personal, really, when there's um, a forum of ideas that are being challenged and contested. So they've made me a better instructor, and, uh, and uh, Craig saw something in me, but it took me five years to get back. I wasn't ready for it. Oh, and during that period... Uh, Serena Wolford from Handspring Publishing, who commissioned the Shetau text, who commissioned Anatomy Trains, five years ago asked me to write a book. A publisher came to me, and that was just no way I could do it. And I wasn't emotionally or psychologically or physically ready for it. I thought I was, but I wasn't. So five years later, full, you know, speed ahead. Uh, last year was a big year. So I, I've always gone to the... Uh, World Fossil Research Congresses. So in September, I rocked up to D.C. for the fourth one. I made three of the four. And uh, I really felt like an Australian because Susan Davis was there, and she came up to me, and we had lunch. And I adore Josephine Key, who wrote Back Pain, a, a Movement Problem. She's based a, a Sydney physiotherapist, very switched on. Her book is underrated and un, undersold when it should be a bestseller. Um she was there, and then Ronnie Alexander were there. So all the Aussies got me. I had a lunch with each one of them. I really feel like I'm, you know, I'm from Oz. You're and part of the Ron green and gold. Yeah, yeah, part of the green and gold. You know, go and oi, oi, oi. Only I sound terrible doing that. Um, so Ronnie said, "Hey," I said to him, "You know, I'd really like to present at the British Fossil Symposium, but I don't think I'd get in. You know, because I'm sort of, I'm like a big." goldfish in a small pond, you know, that's the bigger arena out there. And he said, no, I don't think like that. Put in a proposal and you, you might get in. So I said, sure, why not? So I, I was uh, writing this new coursework on neurofossil mobilization. And because I, there's a story behind that one, of course, as well, but we'll get to it at some point. And 
I said, oh, well, what the hell? I'll, I'll put it in. And not thinking I'd get in. And I was going to be in London anyways because Jing Institute, um, uh, Rachel Fairweather's school, who wrote a book called Massage Fusion, uh, based in, out of Brighton, UK, got, said I, you know, they'd take my course. So I was going over, and whether I was going to present or not, I was going to go to the conference. Because Gil Headley was there, and Carlos Deco was there, and a bunch of other good names. And uh, I, I emailed Jan, who was the organizing committee, and I said, well, look, it, I'm coming over. Um, just let me know. Um, it's okay if I don't get in. She says, no, no, hold on. I, we like what you presented. Hold on. We'll get back to you in about a week. And next thing I know, I was in. Neurofascial mobilization. So... Not only that, I think I shocked them and myself. My class was the first to book out. We overbooked it. So I had the first sold-out workshop at the conference. I thought, yeah. And um, so I went over there and did a really good job with it, I thought. And the responses were really favorable. And this past year, uh, AAMT has been having me go around as uh, one of the workshop presenters in their stable. And I've been pre I presented that in Perth, and in October I'll be pre presenting the one-day class uh, in Adelaide. So that's the recent stuff. Plus, I'm writing the book called Fossil Fossil Therapy: uh, uh, Integrative Soft Tissue Release Fossil Therapy Approach. And um, I just did a couple of uh, neural DVDs with David Sheehan, and um, there's you know more on the. Horizon, collaborative conversations with different social marketers uh, and, uh, you know, trying to become um, less of a Luddite and more of a presence out there with my brand. So that's the current stuff. Oof. You have been on a whirlwind tour. That's really like there's, there's a lot of stuff going on there. So let me, let me rewind just a, a little way to neurofascial mobilization. Yes. Let's talk. You look super excited to talk about this. I love it. You're like, this I is am. my bread and butter. I love it. Yeah, it is. I, I found another niche in the market, you know, I got to <laughs> tell you. Okay, so here's the genesis. Can I, can I launch? Hey, can I go? Let's, let's go. I'm ready. Okay. okay, so neurofascial mobilization, the genesis was I teach uh, locally at uh, Southern School of Natural Therapies in the uh, vocational education training uh, program, VET in the diploma, and they had an advanced course, um, which was actually, uh, I teach the assessment and clinical supervision, so all the range of motion, active, passive, active, resistive, joint place, special tests, and, um, and then I teach the student how to implement that in a clinical supervision setting, and when we're in class, I'm looking, I'm supposed to teach these upper limb tension tests. So an upper limb tension test is uh, a provocative neurodynamic tension test to assess the tension of the nerve and if there's any pain or discomfort, you know, basically. But in the curriculum, there was no neural anatomy and there was no technique. And I thought, wow, what's going on here? So my supervisor gave me leeway within, as we looked at the, the, um, uh, competencies of the, of the course to go ahead and deliver uh, more anatomy and, and, uh, and technique. And what I discovered with the technique is because the, the nerves are bundled with fascia, they behave uh, similarly to how they behave with direct or indirect MFR. And so in other words, it's a fascial form that you can still work with. Now, 
so I thought, yeah, I could teach this. And then when you realize that here are respected programs not teaching neural anatomy and, and massage therapists don't understand nerves, physios understand nerves, osteopaths understand nerves, but massage therapists don't. That's like teaching the psoas without teaching the viscera. So that's another black hole in education. Like people do all the psoas work and they're like, do you understand that the organs like matter? Uh, and so as an educator, there's these big blind spots in teaching. And I thought, damn, I've got a market here. Not only is there a market, I was, you know, like anything, it gives me another chance to practice. And of course, all my clients get neural work now. And what was more important was practicing it always gives you that aha moment when you realize, oh my God, I've not been working nerves enough because muscles are relaxing by working the nerves. In fact, it's always, that's the thing. So what I discovered was, oh, I don't have to treat, just do nerves when there's dysfunction. I can do it regularly when I assess there's tension and that's what I'm teaching. How to go ahead and release neural tension because a sciatic pathway will be tight on a straight leg raise test and you'll go, oh, hamstrings. And I now can say, is it? Is and it? that's what, we, yeah, is it? And the same thing with a medium arm stretch. Is it the muscles that are tight or is it the nerve that's contributing to the tightness? And that's what I'm going to, that's what I'm running people through. And once they understand where the physiotherapists have really shined in the physiology and the mechanics of what nerves do, then you set up that particular intent of variable, uh, which is gliding and sliding. And when you apply your technique, you always have to think about sliding. And so you don't have to actually touch the nerve to affect it, which is sort of cool. And then what you do is as you use your, you use motion. And so like if, uh, for those that are listening, um, we're on Skype and, and Christy and I are having a lot of fun cause we've got the video on. So I can actually demonstrate to her what I'm talking about. So if I find the carpal tunnel medium nerve and I do go like up and down like that, you can see like in any ease and bind situation, there's a direction easier and there's not. So it's moving this way easy and it's not moving down. So if you take the ease and then you do a movement like that, you wait a second and you'll see that I've just moved the nerve and then it gets easier. It's that simple. Uh. And, what, and I'm teaching people that and because it's that simple. So the neural work is uh, going around. I just booked out uh, a short course. I've got eight. Actually, I have nine. I couldn't turn the last one away. So, uh, but that is it. And in and my and early, you know, I've struggled in Australia for a while to book net, local courses. Always having an organizer. I'm terrible at organizing, and so I'd be very under attended. And I would. So I started just part of my journey of getting out of here. I want to live here, but I just didn't feel there was enough. At one point, I didn't think anybody cared what I was teaching down here. So I just put all my focus overseas. And now it looks like there's a renaissance about what's going on with my approaches and how I think. Uh, there's also uh, a lot of battles being fought, especially with certain individuals in the myotherapy uh, arena about evidence-based versus somatic-based. And we can talk about that later as well. 
But neurofascia is really a beautiful thing, and it's given me a chance to really revise not only the anatomy of nerves, but the next major thing that we also probably should touch about, which is neuroscience, to really dwell further into what the what's going on with neuroscience, and neuroscience then means also what's going on with pain, and because we deal with that all the time. So I'm just, you know, the workshops are cool. Now, I've written the upper extremities, and that's what I filmed, and next year I have to write the lower extremities, so then I have a nice little neural package to take around, and eventually also we'll have a separate website and also a separate technique book. Uh, you are a busy, busy man. Well, well, you I make it sound like it's so effortless for you. It's like not. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> you like you just find the ease in the bind and then the thing and then it's done. And I'm like, yeah, oh, but and, and it's like, that's moving better on this side than that side. So, it yeah, sure it's, is. it is trippy. Um, and I think that's the aha moments for therapists. Uh, these concepts um, that they're not quite discovering for themselves that I have. Uh, and remember, I've been practicing 30 years and teaching a quarter of a century now. So, like, I know what I'm on about. And, I, and I'm also because I, people either love me or don't love me. <laughs> I, I don't take, I sort of don't take prisoners. There's no middle road with me, it seems like. Uh, because uh, my mouth gets me in a lot of trouble, Christy. You know, I'm outspoken, <laughs> a loud American. Um, I know what I it's talk, like to have a mouth. Uh, yeah. I'll refrain from any comment on that. Uh, <laughs> Anyways, there's the neurofascial mobilization story. Well, it sounds like it really does. I love, I love to hear you. You talk about how you develop techniques and how you kind of move into the into what you do. And I think this is where you and I get to open the Pandora's box. I think we can kind of talk about the myotherapy kind Ooh. of let's do you want to do you want to open yeah, that box sure. with me a little or, bit you know, yeah let's let's open okay so what what's your question so, give me a question so i can answer okay so my question is how relevant is evidence-based practice right how okay how, how many how many studies do we need how many like do we like yeah, let's let's go down that let's go down that route of is it evidence-based practice or practice-based evidence? Like okay. What do we need? Yeah. Like what do we this need to a, do? This is a favorite topic and depending on who you're talking to and since you're talking to me, uh, you're going to get a particular bias. Absolutely. And belief. So, not to turn off my evidence-based fans, okay? This is not about turning you off. It's not I will I want to make a a disclaimer and a caveat before I launch into sort of my own personal views. And that is, I, as an instructor and educator, I have to take a middle road. Um, I, I, I clearly teach from evidence. There's no way you can't. I'm not, I'm not an, a science skeptic. Um, I am also, however, I embrace pseudoscience. And that's where it gets trouble. That's now, where the waters get a bit muddy. Yeah, and massage, and that's where they're trying to clean. We're living through, um, I'm writing about this at the moment, uh, we're living through really interesting times. We are in shifting sands, which means we're living through a paradigm shift as we speak. Um, so the skeptics are taking the forefront. Evidence-based is pushing hard for uh, to be part of a more uh, global medical model. 
And if it's just the science can't prove it, then, you know, the, because basically what happened was woo-woo says people who are doing woo-woo are living sort of in their own world of perception. And it is really our perception that's going on when we're touching. So um, this now leads sort of into an interesting thing around perception. And I've been writing about um, paradigms, belief systems, biases, and perception. Uh, before, in the first chapter of my book, and that's been sort of bogging me down, and I keep changing my mind, and I rewrite my content. So Colin Rossi, who I have great respect for, um, who is, again, an outspoken uh, advocate. Uh, he's in a, uh, uh, an association, uh, Australian Massage Therapists, um, who at times has an antagonistic relationship with uh, AAMT on points of reference here and there. But he puts his money where his mouth is. I wanted to do a scoliosis webinar. So here's, here's the difference. Here's, so on the myotherapist forum, the administrator of that myotherapy discussion group said, how dare you, basically to me, how dare you teach scoliosis because you're not, you're not trained in it and you're not a physiotherapist. So therefore, you shouldn't know about anything what you're talking about. Where Colin, who is a structural integrationist, brilliant mind, works with scoliosis clients on a weekly basis and devotes his time to do that. And as I managed to get my publisher onto him, I'm hoping he puts out his book because it's, it's really important. He made material available for me to use, and I cited him. And, and so basically I said to the person on the myotherapy discussion forum that, what do you mean I can't talk about it? Just because I'm not, what, evidence-based trained in it, that I can't have a voice on it? I'm an educator. Part of my curiosity is to dwell into things and report on it to others. And so as an educator, of course I believe in evidence-based models. However, I'm comfortable in the unknown very much so. So I have all kinds of things that come up in practice that cannot be explained. I have what's called, I choose to call it, now this is where, hold on to your hats, where the listeners are going to go, right, but I have what's called a felt sense, and a felt sense is my internal perceptual barometer, for lack of a better descriptor, right through from my sternum down to my solar plexus, and when I'm working with somebody, I get a perceptual wave that comes up that I can utilize that gives me information about the changes in the system and if their autonomic system is responding to my technique. That's why earlier this year when I had my back turned to a table and I was still talking to you and I was tuning into the table behind me and then when I said to the girl, no, move your hands to the left, you'll get the release there, she just about dropped her drawers and went, you're a guru. And I said, no, I'm not a guru. That's not being, it's not a guru. No, in fact, just call, from the guru. Just, yeah, just call me goo. I, I'll take the goo, not the guru. What it meant was I have a heightened perceptual sensitivity. What is that? That's unexplainable. Now, people would say in the bias that we're talking about these days would call that a, um, a pareidolia, a palpatory pareidolia. It would be a subconscious illusion involving a vague and random stimulus that I perceive as being significant. 
it means that somehow uh, they would say that, in other words, if I saw a cloud that resembled the face of Jesus, that Jesus was talking to me. Wait, you don't see Jesus in your cheese sandwiches? No, just in my tea leaves. Ah, I see. I had a grandmother who read tea leaves. So see, it started really young. They indoctrinated me with pseudoscience. (laughs) And then I had relationships with astrologers and tarotists. And oh my God, the occult. I studied theosophy. Oh no, I even went to a school of magic. And shit happened in that school that I can't fathom to explain to you. There were weather changes just over the house. So, uh, you know, so what do you do with that, right? What do you do with that? So for me... We write down on our piece of paper, school of magic, talk about later. (laughs) Yes, all right, later. I'll talk about later on that. So for me... um, I moved to Seattle because it was the only place where alternative uh, spirituality, materialism, and uh, progressive insights were allowed, uh, and the rest of the country felt really conservative. So I've always been in the alternative. I'm married to a homeopath, for God's sake. You know, she should be burnt at the stake for practicing pseudoscience. That's what. So getting back to the evidence-based skeptics. What you have is uh, we're living through a shift in paradigm and beliefs. Now, the positive of that is they're bringing logic and rational, and they want more accountability uh, on assessment and, and reliability in testing. And they do not believe that our touch does that with any kind of certainty to be reproduced over time. Um, uh, Torshin Liam, who is a respected cranial osteopath, a couple of years ago wrote a blog and he was looking at the inaccuracies and inconsistencies of reliability through touch palpation. Because I'm old school boy. I believe in palpatory literacy, literacy. I believe I can touch and feel adhesions. I can discern different layers and affect them. What they're saying is these are basically cognitive behaviors that impact profoundly the notion of our absolute precision and absolutely correct perception in diagnosing and treating through palpation. And pareidolia is one of those uh, biases, but then he talks about others that I want to read to you. One is confirmation bias, the tendency of people to favor information that confirms their beliefs or hypothesis, and it shares a close association with pareidolia. By year three, you'll study the movement you've been taught, and and it will be there in your hands. doesn't matter that what you've learned or what you think is going on, it'll be there. Uh, uh, we tend to teach that way, and I agree. I mean, uh, you have to look at that bias. There's another one called cognitive ease, where a teacher places their hands on yours and pushes you down to a deeper level and asks you to feel the difference, and you say yes and convince yourself that your initial perception of the layer you were on was wrong, and they are right because they've been doing this for years. So in a way, I'm guilty of a cognitive ease. I know what works for me, and I'm trying to reproduce that ease of understanding through touch to my students. And of course, they're baffled and amazed and disgruntled because they can't feel it. Uh, There's also what's called perceptual bias, how we learn within the profession we are immersed in, the expectations that are felt and the educational requirements, which you and I have been talking about, to be able to palpate patterns of movement introduces what's called a perceptual bias, where social pressure 
group thinking and group context may change not only our judgment on perception, but perception itself. And finally, there's the last one is called inattentional blindness, the failure to notice an unexpected stimulus that is in one's own field of vision when other attention demanding tasks are performed. Uh, palpation is commonly performed with closed eyes while we listen to patterns of movement the patient's presenting, removing an important observational necessity. Well, I always tell my students, start with closed eyes, but get them open. So I don't do inattentional blindness. I don't have to. Um, but I am guilty, I guess, of those other four of the five biases. So well, either in, as an educator or as a practitioner. So what I'm saying to you is I am not closed off. I wouldn't be reading this to, uh, to you and our listeners as an educator. What I always tell my students is I'm going to I'll preface if I have a bias. Do not take it for the gospel. Find out for yourself. Because really, we are teaching perception variables so that people can sort of duplicate perception variables but they still are only within the you know your awareness i can and for me i frame this more as and and lederman talks about this by the way errol lederman he's a great book he talks about therapeutic intent and he talks about instrumental manual intent and expressive manual intent and another way to phrase this is what's called interoception and exteroception most of the time, we're dealing with uh, we're dealing with reality for clients, and most of them are outward focused. They're not in touch with their bodies, so they're aware of pain and they're aware of external things. But you ever get the client that you ask them what they're feeling and they can't answer that question because they have no physical connection with their perceptual awareness inside themselves, and so a lot of our treatment is about doing that, and that's can be framed as interoception and and so there's i got to tell you the debate out there is enormous at the moment christy regarding this material so finally to wrap that up i know take a breath evidence-based get me going now <clears throat> evidence-based i believe in but i don't share the completeness of the work and what i i complain to them about is their judgment that I am somehow an unintelligent, uninformed, non-educated person who is embracing unknowns and having phenomena occur that I utilize in my practice with some reliability uh, that, uh, you know, it's all smoke and mirrors. And there it is. Boom. It's one of the it is really interesting at the moment because I know I know and I'm I'm booking an interview at the moment with John Sharkey and I I'm, I'm pretty sure I love John. He's he's a really interesting guy and there is this there has to be this paradigm shift in what we're how we're thinking. Absolutely. Um, and I think it just really brings it back to what you spoke about at the beginning of the interview which was you went in, you practiced and you you didn't really know what you were doing and that was okay. And I think there's this – we're kind of having these moments now where we're having to try to find a rock in this stream of, of 
the the lives that lives that we're living to hold on to and a lot of people are trying to hold on to evidence-based practice they're like holding up their research papers going but the research says and you're like yeah but the clients say it's working and i'm going into clinic and i'm using these techniques and it's working with people and i think what we're inhaling no what i was going to say say with teaching is i've had to not talk about properties any longer in fascia i talk about them but i say you make up your own mind i'll teach you the techniques that work we don't understand the why and that's okay I, you want to know the why mm-hmm. and keep searching for the why but it's also okay to live with that you don't know the why but if it's working what's wrong with utilizing it and if i don't have a model that can tell me from evidence base should i what commit I might as well, from their standpoint, kill myself right now because anything I've done in my life has no worth if I buy into their model. Mm. You see, it's a model of belief and philosophy that we're also talking about here. And, and so I think as Jason Kiley, who's probably the best young philosopher in manual therapy on the planet right now, uh, he's based out of Perth. Uh, I have discussions with him. It's like I feel like I've gone to... I've gone the opposite. I'm not the elder. I'm, I'm, I'm kneeling to an elder who's got a, a degree of wisdom because he's just switched on around. And he's looking at the philosophy of what, how, where, what model are we operating from? And make no mistake, even though they won't admit it, the people that have an evidence-based science model are working from a belief system. And, you know, that belief system is that that model is the only way to prove anything. And I think what they think is somehow that the other side dis- discredits that or disregards it. And that it's not true at all. I think you can have several models operating at once. I think that's the paradigm shift we're talking about. And so as a practitioner, they have to examine their own beliefs and biases. Because make no mistake, massage as procedure and technique is one thing. Or excuse me, touch as procedure and technique is one thing but also it's communication and expression. It's got a psychological component. It's got an emotional component. I had a woman cry on my table on Wednesday for the first time in 20 years, spontaneously, working utero area. Uh, you know, session five, trusting me more and more, she allowed herself in combination w- with other treatment going on to have the first emotional expression, expression come out of her body in 20 years. Uh, so what is that? Did I conjure that? No. Was that a spontaneous moment that comes up through the work of uh, touch, through touch? It's somatic in its origin. So the problem with evidence base is, to me, it doesn't embrace enough, and this is my bias, by the way, it could be wrong, uh, it doesn't embrace the somatic, emotional, and um, psychological enough, because they consider it out of the scope of practice. I watch my students, they're, they're doing all the techniques right, but the outcome isn't happening. What is that? And what do I have to do? I, I tell them, remember, you're actually working on someone. And the other comment I always make is pretend you like the person you're working on. It goes a long way, you know. Uh, get out of your head of, you know, t- technique and actually treat them with some TLC. Guess what will happen? Everything changes. Um, and then you get powerful uh, expressions coming. Go ahead. I, I talk so much. I'll oh, let you no, get no. You. I was, I'm just, I just want to bring it to, um, I think it was Aaron Bright 
on one of the conversations yeah, I had with him. Who is a very bright individual, by the way. No, <laughs> but on boom. Pun, in, pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> and he and he spoke about the dichotomy between like the evidence-based practice of myotherapy and, you know, working into these higher models of, of research bases and all these kinds of things and the biopsychosocial aspect. Absolutely. And that's um, one of the models I've written about. And Joseph McKee has been talking about that model for a, de a decade. People are out there talking, but it needs to bring, it needs to be a continued uh, focus of that. Let's look at the different models. Mm. Uh, you know, there's pathoanatomical model where all your uh, signs and symptoms model. There's, you know, uh, nerve entrapment model. You know, what are you working out of? Because it's like when I went to a podiatrist and told me I couldn't wear a certain kind of shoes for the rest of my life when I was 25 years old. I said, get your head out of your feet. You know, you're talking to a guy that wears Converse sneakers. Uh, you know, I, I mean, where you're too myopic. You're not looking at the big picture. Mm. And that's what I see going on with our models. That's exactly right. So go on. Aaron was also saying what? Yeah, Aaron just, Aaron just says it's, it's hard. Um, it's complex for therapists where we are working in this extremely complicated environment um, because a lot of times people, our clients are coming in to see us and they're, they're not seeing anyone else. They're only, right, right. they're coming to us and we are their sole point of contact. And you're in a, you're, I've, I did a, a workshop for AAMT regionally back in 03 called the gray area of massage. If people go to my website, www.fascialrelease.com, there's an old article called the gray area of massage, uh, emotionality and expression. And I delivered that workshop and then there was somebody that, uh, there's always someone who's going to criticize whatever you do, so you sort of have to take that. They said I, they, I should have been a qualified psychologist talking about it, just like I've got this person on the myotherapy forum telling me I should be advanced in talking about scoliosis. No, I, this is a free fucking democracy. I can talk about whatever I want. I have emotions. <laughs> I can talk about them. Yes. You know, and, and in that area, the gray area of massage is that our scope of practice is to deal with the body. It's not to deal with the content of their material. So I teach in my first workshop when, because I have to prepare practitioners that an emotional event will occur if you use the techniques I'm delivering. Oh, my God. Yes. It, and in all honesty, I can absolutely vouch for this fact. <laughs> yes, I remember you did have a moment. And, the, and that is spontaneous expression. What is that? I have now, no they, idea. I still don't they know. Don't, they don't understand it well. Now, there's theories of which the evidence-based people would say that does not hold water. I don't, uh, you know, we can talk about those theories if you want. But more importantly is I'm interested that that is a f emotion is energy in motion. That's how I define it. And it's an expression autonomically because we're wired that way. That emotions are necessary, not to be feared, but a phenomena to be handled uh, in the context of a therapeutic space, in a safe, sacred space, with a duty of care. And that's how I teach it. We do not go for solution or content that's irrelevant. The person will make meaning about it. What you have to trust is it's sort of a mini storm going on for the individual and the storm will have a beginning, middle, and end. Now, how long that takes, 
and how skillful and equipped the practitioner is to move them through the storm. Uh, and the parameters of that are very simple. You validate, you, you validate straight away, uh, you remain present, you do not, uh, you communicate clearly and you listen. Listening, I can't stress enough, is sort of one of the, the hallmarks in, in this sort of thing, you, you, you know, without judgment, by the way. Now, that's hard to do because discernment is a form of judgment, but without biased judgment about your client. In other words, making them feel safe, have trust and valid, validation are the real critical components. And you can handle most any emotion that comes up if you know how to work with those variables. And this is what I teach now, variables, really. I'm basically framing things as touch is nothing but variables of touch based on sensory receptor response at the simplest terms. And once you understand that every soft tissue has that, you vary your variables and you get varying responses. Wow. <laughs> so many things. This is like therapy. It is Christy. like therapy. It's like I'm. Go we're going. We're gonna have. It's gonna be tears and all all of the emotions. I've watched. Yeah, I've watched you change uh, oh. after this conversation. That's so cool. Uh, this oh. is my mission in life, Christy. I want to download this material out of me. I. I am. I am. I'm obsessed, not obsessed is the word, I have to teach. Yeah. It's my mission in life has never changed, to travel and teach the world, doing what I love. And, you know, and you're going to have people that are inspired by what you do, and you're going to have people like in South Africa that think I'm a wanker. And so be it, you know, um, because it's not going to shut me up until, you know, I don't have a breath to draw. Uh, I've figured some things out, and I want to share them. And I have beliefs and biases as like anybody else. But uh, it's mostly about, you know, trying to um, enhance and support and, and create a passion, uh, which has never left me uh, in this industry. I find it, it's, I'm fascinated by this whole process of touch and what happens with it. And I've never lost that appetite and curiosity for it. <laughs> You are truly amazing. I, I really believe um, that you have a lot of ama of a lot of really cool stuff to share with people, and and I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that you've that you've come on the show and you've shared a little bit of <laughs> the wealth of passion and knowledge and all the things that you have. So let me finish with one one final question. Okay. Okay. And I think I think this is actually I'm going to have two. I'm going to have two final questions. Right. One. I'm ready. Yeah. If you could receive a treatment from anyone living or dead. Wow. Who would that person be and why? Oh, that's hard. I, I wouldn't be one treatment because <laughs> there's so many different ones. Because you're Okay, there's two that come to mind. Okay. Because I'm going on Millionaire's Hot Seat in a few weeks. And one of the stories I had was... In 1978, I traveled bicycle around the Big Island of Hawaii. And during that period, the Kilauea crater erupted. So one night, the person I was with and I went, and we watched the flow of the lava and the fumes, and the, the Lomi Lomi Hawaiian spiritual elder, Auntie Margaret, walked barefoot on the lava, 
and did a blessing to Pele, the god of the volcano. So that gave me an instant love for Hawaiian Lomi Lomi. Now, Lomi Lomi was meant to be a spiritual delivery of body work. Now, that's one. The second is to go to India, which I might go to in November, and go through an Ayurvedic process of massages every day, and they use herbs and colonics and just everything, because if anyone needs a purge, it's me. And so I would, you know, I would do that. Uh, if Milton Traeger was still alive, I'd get a mentastic Traeger session, because he developed oscillation. Um, if Moshe Feldenkrais was still alive, I'd get a Feldenkrais session. So basically everyone. You're like, I want a treatment from everyone. Not from everyone, no. The thing that I wouldn't want is I don't want remedial massage muscle work. Personally, it doesn't work for me. I want somebody that's more somatic-based, goes slow, uh, is really in tune with the body. Uh, for me, that's what works. So I can take therapists if they have that element. But yeah, those would be the highlight ones, I guess, from that question. Fantastic. And my final question and I feel like this is going to be a big one, though. I probably should have asked sure. this at the start. But yeah, well, you, is there something... This is an extended version of this <laughs> podcast. Go ahead. <laughs> this will be the bonus. This will be the bonus material. Yeah, this is the bonus one, folks. Bonus material. <laughs> what rubs you the wrong way about uh, the massage yeah. industry? Oh, this, could be the, <laughs> this should be the second one. All right, let's just start. Um, oh, my God. Well, elitism. Elitism. Uh, biotherapists that think they're God's gift to the discipline uh, who want to be so matched up in the medical model that they adopt just a, a rigid a viewpoint. That rubs me the wrong way. That they discredit massage as being valuable or have a place when actually it's massage that's leading the way, not the higher education. I've come full circle. I was elitist for a while. Uh, I've come back to recognizing that I'm always going to be a somatic body worker. So what rubs me the wrong way is these people who think that their modality is the only modality and they align themselves in a worldview of narrowness. That really rubs me the wrong way. Stephen Goldstein, thank you so much for your time today. It has been an, a, a delight and a pleasure and I'm really I'm really 100% positive that this is going to be a really awesome interview. Everyone is going to be so stoked to hear from you. Uh, now, where can my listeners connect with you um, online? So give me your web address again. I think that's fascialrelease.com. Okay. That's right. I'll embed this once you give me the link Fantastic. on my site. I'll Excellent. post it on my Facebook professional site. And anyone that wants to friend me, at friends of IFR slash ISTR, Integrative Fascia Release and Integrative Soft Tissue Release. That's my professional Facebook site. Fantastic. Uh, as we've been discussing down the road, I'm going to be, I decided I'm going to create these little five minute master classes that I want to get up on YouTube and, um, and they're going to be free. Yay, free. So, so um, and this is going to be free, sure this is. podcast. Absolutely. I want, uh, you know, that's, Fantastic. Sort of the story. And anyways, if you, you sell the stuff, it's going to get on the you know, black market anyway. Someone's <laughs> going to make a copy of it. So what the hell? 
Uh, I want to. I want to get this stuff out. I don't want to hold it back. So fantastic. Well, we look forward to you not being held back any longer. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much, Stephen. Thanks for listening to Rub the Wrong Way. We'd love to connect with site www.rubtherightway.com where you can download your free copy of the hustle method six steps to a kick-ass massage biz or on facebook rub the wrong way podcast or on twitter at rub wrong this is a we are podcast show we are podcast is australia's premium gathering of current and future podcasters if you aren't a member yet you should go and check us out at wearepodcast.com and click on the members live here button right in the center of the page included in your membership are monthly accountability sessions with me that's a tongue twister monthly state of the union podcasting webinars as well as free podcast hosting for the rest of your membership life with audio boom we not only cover everything podcasting but we also cover every other aspect of online business around your podcast so if you want to make money and grow your influence using a podcast get your first month for only 19 dollars using the promo code i am podcast at checkout also for peace of mind you can leave whenever you like uh in case you've had enough of us so uh go in and check it out we are podcast.com and click on the members live here button <laughs>